Hi, everyone. This is Candace Demetrius, Vice President of Policy and Advocacy for the Partnership to Fight Infectious Disease. I'm happy to welcome you to our podcast series, Infectious Conversations. Through Infectious Conversations, we're having discussions with healthcare professionals, policy, and other experts to get a grip on how to squash superbugs. Our goal is to better understand the threat, antibiotic, and other antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, the threat these um, things pose and the need to address them now. We also seek to understand how we can build on what we're learning throughout the COVID-19 pandemic to improve health outcomes for everyone. Today, our segment features a discussion between two important leaders in the fight against AMR. We're happy to have with us Michael Craig and John Rex to help explore superbugs, the threat they represent to all of us, what's being done to address them, and what more should be done about the problem. It's my pleasure to introduce them both. I'm going to start with Michael Craig. He's the, he leads the coordination of CDC's cross-cutting antibiotic-resistant activities by developing and guiding CDC's strategic direction to address national goals to combat antibiotic resistance. He serves as one of the ex officio members representing CDC on PAC-CARB, and that stands for the President's Advisory Committee for Combating Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria, and works closely with leadership within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to align public health activities related to antibiotic resistance across multiple federal agencies. Prior to this role, he spent 12 years with CDC Washington, where he provided policy and strategy expertise to multiple centers within CDC, including advice related to healthcare-associated infections and antibiotic resistance for the National Center for Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Diseases. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Candace. Also with us is John Rex. He's a physician and drug developer with 30 plus years of development and policy experience focused on antimicrobial agents. His experience includes moving antifungal and antibacterial agents from preclinical development through all development phases in the context of academic positions, board and executive roles at multinational pharmaceutical and biotech companies, and strategic roles at Wellcome Trust, Carbex, and Advent Life Sciences. More recently, his work has broadened to include advancing novel regulatory and reimbursement paradigms for antimicrobial agents, founding of the New Drugs for Bad Bugs program of Europe's Innovative Medicines Initiative, and leadership of an antifungal-focused biotech company. Welcome, John. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to see you. Let's jump right in. We'd like to ask questions of our guests. So, um, Michael, I'm going to start with you. Um, CD, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has dominated all our lives for the past two years and counting now and the headlines and the news. Uh, but we don't hear as much about drug-resistant superbugs. How does the CDC track these drug-resistant superbugs and how big a problem are they really? So, great question, Candice. And it's actually very timely um, because... Uh, some academic colleagues actually just published some, some global estimates on the burden of antibiotic resistance in January in, in The Lancet. And it was a critically important paper because it's really the first one that quantifies 
the overall global burden of antibiotic resistance. And they found that it is actually antibiotic resistance and infections from antibiotic resistant threats is a leading cause of death. And it kills at least 1.27 million people every year. And if you even look at and how many infections it's associated with, not just the ones that are it's attributed to, that, that number actually grows to nearly 5 million deaths annually globally. And that actually makes it uh, a, a bigger threat and a, and a higher risk of death than HIV and malaria combined when you look at sort of the global burden of all of those pathogens. In the United States, when we look at what we are tracking from the CDC perspective, we see that combined with all of the threats in our threats report, there's over 3 million infections in the United States every year and uh, over 48,000 deaths. So all told, when you look at this, the, the burden of AR pathogens, the burden of these infections is great in terms of uh, the number of people who are dying as well as the number of illnesses overall. And that's something that we need to be paying attention to because what we've been seeing, um, especially globally, we, we expect these numbers to rise over time and we, we really only expect this problem to get worse. And so from the CDC perspective, in terms of what we're doing to track it, we're always looking to see how we can improve our data. Um, with the, the global numbers that just came out, around the same time, we actually extended our laboratory network, uh, the AR laboratory network, which we've had in the uh, and established in the United States over the past few years, we've actually now extended that to have global sites uh, so that we can actually start collecting some better data to understand how some of the threats that we're facing in the U.S. are actually um, harming folks overseas, what could be done to actually mitigate that, identify those threats early on, and stop the transmission of those. So I think all told, you know, the, the problem that we face is daunting, and there's a lot more that all of us need to do about it, and it's, it's a threat that's really not going away. John, given the extent of the threat, why, why don't we hear more about it? Is it just that it's so complicated? I know in some of your communications, you use a really, a really neat analogy about fires and fighting fires. Um, do we need more of that? Do you mind explaining how you talk about antibiotic resistance and um, antimicrobial resistance in ways that kind of helps people to understand what we're talking about? You know, Candace, you, you touch upon something that is really critical. It is, it's kind of hard to understand this problem because most of us go through average day, week, month, year, this is completely invisible to you. You, you know, you know, COVID has brought an infection into common discussion, but prior to COVID, how often did we talk about stuff like this? It would have been kind of uncommon. And, and we've, we've struggled with good language for, to ex explain this challenge. And one of the memes we hit on is sort of 2015-16. We stumbled into a, a meme that has been helpful. It, it doesn't, get, doesn't do everything in the universe, but it actually is useful. And it's to recognize that infections are a lot like fires. Uh, your house catches on fire, your neighbor's house is now at risk from the fire. And the other thing about fires is they go fast. You know, the, the, the house is on fire right now and you need to do something right now about it. Um, you can't start building the fire department when your house is on fire because it will all be over at that point uh, by the time the fire department gets built. And the, and the, the utility of this was it led to us having, into a conversation about, about antibiotics and antibiotics are to... Uh, infections as fire extinguishers in the fire department is to the fire. 
And this in turn had a sort of had a knock on effect about thinking about this, a very boring idea, which is being prepared. You know, it, it, it's one of those things that just you want to end a conversation, you know, so let's talk about being prepared, boring, boring, boring. And, and yet you can suddenly start to see it as being a, a really a, a vital conversation. You know, why do I want to invest money in a fire department? Well, I understand that. Why do I want to invest money in having life insurance? And we sometimes like to teach people to say, did your life insurance pay off today? How do you feel about that? Well, I feel fine about that, actually. I'm happy that it did pay off, but I'm certainly going to, going to continue to pay my premiums. And so this idea that, that antibiotics protect us, protect commerce is a critical one, because now let's actually pretend we need to go talk to a finance minister. And this is, this is where the, if you will, the money slide comes in. Um, you need to convince uh, the, him or her that it's important to put money into doing something like having antibiotics or vaccines available to prevent the fires. And, and here she says, why? I said, well, this is how you keep people healthy. And, it's, and you want, you want the, your economy to go around. You want the world to whiz with people out there doing energetic, happy citizens things. They got to be happy. They got to be healthy. And the way we keep them healthy is by doing stuff to be ready to control the inevitable outbreak. So antibiotics are the fire extinguishers of medicine. You need to have them in advance. And it, and it feeds into a problem with, with paying for them. But also it's why the work that Michael does on monitoring, you, you need to have fire detectors. You know, and if you don't know what kind of fires are out there, you don't know what you need to be be fighting, you will you'll feel you know you you will make mistakes. And I think COVID has actually opened up this conversation in ways that we've not had before. I don't want to say anything good about COVID, nothing, but it has forced us to have conversations in ways that that I think if we will continue that momentum, they it's very productive. No, that's that's great, and. Um... Michael, to carry on that analogy, if you will, um, and John touched on it, some of the things that COVID has taught us about not being prepared, even though, like you said, John, that can be a little boring um, in terms of testing, surveillance, having those vaccines and treatments, even though we got them in record times, we still were closing in on a million lives lost um, in the U.S. due to COVID. So what, what have we learned um, through that, that could and should be applied to other superbugs and the emergence of these resistant superbugs. So this is a great question, and I think I think John touched on it, and I'll I'll just build on it further. I think that the number one thing that I think we've learned as a, a country, and especially from the public health perspective, and and it's actually not even as a country; it's really globally what we've learned from a public health perspective is that prevention is preparedness. That for us to be prepared to address infectious disease threats, we have to have a focus and an eye on prevention. And I think John's analogy of fire and as it relates to infectious disease is, is a great one. And I'll just sort of extend it that when we think of, you know, what does it mean for prevention as preparedness? It means that we have firefighters. We, we have the boots on the ground who are responding. Those are the folks who are our, our public health officials who are collecting the data, knowing what's going on. And then when they see the data, they are ringing the, the alarm bell and they are trying to make sure that that fire, that infection, that pathogen doesn't spread further than it needs to. So they're going into a hospital or they're going into a nursing home and they're trying to protect as many patients as possible 
by stomping out that proverbial fire, that infection, that pathogen, um, as soon as it's detected. So we need more firefighters. The other thing that would just flag in addition to sort of the fire extinguishers um, and the antibiotics, which I would agree with John about, is we need more fire prevention tools. So, and this can take the, you know, a lot of different forms. John noted vaccines. That's one that, you know, the pandemic has really taught us the importance and the value of vaccines. We have also seen that value for antibiotic resistant pathogens. There's a strep pneumo vaccine. And the, the thing that I always really want to reinforce with vaccines for AR pathogens is it has the uh, sort of a, a multitude of benefit. One, it protects the individual from the pathogen. It protects the, the pathogen from spreading further. And then the other one that we can't underestimate from an antibiotic resistance perspective is it lowers our use of antibiotics. And if we're using fewer antibiotics, there's less pressure for resistance to develop and there's more people that are protected from it. But there's other prevention tools, you know, the, the, the baseline of stewardship, infection control, all of these things we need more of everywhere. And then the other area that I would touch on as well that we're keenly interested in um, is decolonization agents. And so these are, these are things where a person could be colonized with a pathogen, like a resistant pathogen, and it could be living on their skin, or it could be living in their, their, their nose, it could be living in their gut but they're not sick with it. But the risk is that they could become sick with it. So there's a risk to the patient, but they also could spread that pathogen further. And especially in a nursing home setting or a hospital setting, that risk of transmission or spreading that pathogen is, is, is potentially high, depending upon the pathogen and depending upon the person. And so we would really like to see if there's, you know, we think that there's a possibility of getting agents to the market and, and getting them approved by FDA that could reduce that decolonization, that could reduce that potential spread and, the, and that pressure to spread in a way that could protect the individual, but also protect the folks who are in the ICU, protect healthcare workers, protect other folks in the nursing home. Um, and I think could be a very valuable prevention tool that we don't have yet. And so I think that's what it comes back to is that, you know, the reason why we were able to get vaccines to market so quickly for COVID was that we had invested for decades and decades in these technologies that allowed us to do some of these things quickly. We had, we had invested and we had prepared with a focus on prevention. We need to do the same and we need to keep doing that, especially for our AR pathogens. And the more that we can invest in those new prevention tools, the better prepared we're gonna be for whatever comes along, but the better we're gonna be able to address these day-to-day -day threats that we see every day. You know, and it's really, you pick that up, you may say, well, we need a couple billion dollars to go do some of this work. So I say, well, that's a lot of money, a couple billion dollars. You know, and I think there's an economic you lesson. you said a billion with a B, right? I said B with a yeah, billion as in billions of dollars, not chump change. And, and yet you look at what the lack of a COVID fire extinguisher has done to the global economy. I, I don't know that I've seen a number. Have either of you seen a number? How much has COVID cost us on a global basis? All of the stuff that we've, we've, we've put in place as a result of it and lives disrupted and travel that didn't happen and people that went bankrupt, it's gotta be in the trillions. And so- I, I it, saw an early estimate in it. There was definitely a T associated and that was in 2020. That wasn't as far yeah. as we've come this far, yeah. 
Yeah, one of my lessons from from the uh, the the Drive AB project in Europe and, and the work that the UK uh, 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 AMR group did was that the economists who were in that group taught me to think in terms of numbers like that as not, oddly enough, a billion dollars. It isn't very much when what you're what you're buying with it is the protection of an economy that's valued in the trillions or multiples of trillions. It, it, it's a, it is a, it's a minor cost because it makes all the world, all the rest of the world whiz around. Well, John, we see that there's a need for it. And we saw with the COVID-19 vaccines that, and, and Michael was talking about the tremendous amount of work that went into it. So why don't we have more of these? What's, what's the holdup? Well, at a core level, the reason we don't have more antibiotics, the reason why we don't have tools, you know, why there are bacteria right now for which we do not have a therapy, and why did why did we in this sense why did we allow that to happen? Um, because for a long time we were always inventing the next antibiotic. It was it was always handy. You really didn't hear about you know there's always the odd infection you didn't do very well with, but by and large you expected to be able to treat the infections you saw. Whereas at this stage of the game, it is, it happens regularly. You look at somebody and say, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with your bug. I, I, I'm not sure I can treat you or I'm, it's going to, or it's going to be really tough. So the, the, the dry pipeline, which has been the subject of several reviews, so it's sort of an ongoing series of reviews. The WHO is the, now sort of the catalyst behind keeping up with a regular up survey of our pipeline. And I'm part of the team that uh, helps them critique their analysis. Um, their most recent one, you know, the title of it is the pipeline is dry and there aren't enough of the right kind of drugs coming. And, and there, I think there are two fundamental causes. One is that it's actually quite hard to discover a new antibiotic. It's, it's, a, it's remarkable that you can find a chemical that does something so almost so counterintuitive. It kills one organism, the bacteria, and leaves the other one that's sitting right next to it untouched. And that's kind of a good trick. You know, yeah. Killing bacteria is not hard. Steam, fire, and bleach, they work great, but they would also not be very selective. You want something that goes right in and hits the bacteria and not anything else around it. And so finding chemicals that do that is, is tough. They are rare, rare tools. And then the second problem has been that particularly in the last 10 or 15 years, as we've got become better, as we've better understood the problem of antibiotic stewardship and economic models have shifted, we, we have hit upon this profound paradox, which is that if you invent a new antibiotic, the better the new antibiotic, the more likely you are to go out of business, which is totally counterintuitive. You, you, you invent a useful, interesting new antibiotic and the community response to that, and this is the correct response. Community response is, that's really valuable. I, I shouldn't use it very often, but when I do use it, I'm gonna be happy to use it. So thank you. Thank you, young man, for, for that work. But it's so valuable, we're really not gonna use it more than once or twice a year. And given that antibiotics currently, the only way we pay for antibiotics is if somebody buys them to put them into a human being to treat an infection. That means that the person who has spent a large amount of money inventing that new antibiotic goes out of business. We have now several examples of that with companies that have brought products to the market. And what they've done is go out of business. And 
this is the problem with the fire extinguisher model because because where it's sort of where it breaks down we've we've agreed as a community to buy fire extinguishers we pay the fire people their salaries you know we've put up the fire departments we and we, we don't justify uh re-upping their their uh, their contracts to stay in the fire department every year on the basis of how many fires that occurred matter of fact if the, if the number of fires in my town was zero i'd say good work you worked on prevention, you worked on detection, you got out there and you taught everybody how not to have a fire. Keep doing that, as opposed to saying, well, there were no fires, I don't think I need you anymore. Um, and so we have to actually find a way to pay for antibiotics that is different from the way we pay for other drugs. We have to pay for them like they are fire extinguishers. And that has taken us a long time to learn to say out loud. Uh, it's because it's so counterintuitive. It, it, you don't expect, you'd expect to buy a drug when you need it. Well, this is a case of saying you actually need it even when you're not putting out a fire. And that takes a certain mental leap. I need it even when I'm not putting out a fire. So I want to buy that fire extinguisher. I want to have that antibiotic in the pharmacy well in advance of the, the fire that it treats breaking out in my hospital. But when it does break out, I'll have it right then and I put out the fire and nobody else gets sick. And that's, that's the, the mental twist. And so talking about that and talking about spending money on that is something that we've been working on since 2000, really it's seriously since 2009, the Swedish government convened the very first conference that led to a whole series of conversations that now uh, was it 12, 13 years later. We actually have a language for talking about this problem. There, the, the UK is doing some very exciting work about buying a pair of antibiotics on a pilot's program, buying them like the fire extinguishers. Uh, and in the, in the United States, there's a very exciting piece of legislation called the Pasteur Act, named after Louis Pasteur, who invented um, a lot of modern microbiology, including the, the technique of pasteurization that makes your milk safe. Um, it, it, the, that, the Pasteur Act is talking about getting the US government involved in buying selectively antibiotics on a regular basis on their for their value as a fire extinguisher. So and it's sort of a very different way of paying for it. Pay for it to have it available and ready to put out the fire. Just don't use it unless there really is a fire. Well, that's a great point. And Michael, I want to go back to you on something too, because we talked about it's really important at a national level and international level. That collaboration is really interesting to hear. But I also want to bring it back to the individual level. You're talking about colonization, you're talking about prevention. What can individuals do? I mean, are there things that we should be doing? You know, people talk about antibacterial soap. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I mean, uh, <laughs> antibiotic use. We talk about hearing too much, you know, are we using too many antibiotics? I mean, what what can I do as an individual or people listening to the podcast to really help help avoid, you know, making the problem worse? Absolutely. And and I think the thing that we go back to, there are a lot of these big issues as, as John was, I think, so eloquently describing that we need to work out in terms of reimbursement of these drugs. But you're absolutely right. These are still fundamentally uh, infections that, that impact us, right? There's not really anyone who's listening who probably has never taken an antibiotic. Like everybody has some experience with an antibiotic. And, and we know that especially for our young children, I have, uh, you know, three girls at home and one is currently on an amox on amoxicillin for an ear infection. Um, and, and as a parent, you, you know that and you go through that. And then, you know, as, you know, people age, 
or in nursing homes, antibiotics also very commonly used for a whole variety of things, urinary tract infections, other things, and we, we need them available. So the thing that we always want to, to note is to empower people about what they can do to protect themselves and their family. So, you know, one thing is always practicing good hygiene. This goes back to some of the things that, you know, we've heard so many times related to, to during the pandemic and related to COVID, but you know, fundamentally washing your hands, doing it thoroughly with soap and water, using alcohol-based hand sanitizer if you can't wash your hands with soap and water, those things are very important to continually protecting yourselves, not just from COVID, but from a lot of these antibiotic-resistant germs that we face and that we see all the time. The other thing is to get vaccinated. Again, it goes, you know, this could be your COVID vaccine. It could also be your flu vaccine. It could be uh, a pneumococcus vaccine. But getting vaccines ultimately does protect you and it ultimately does help in the fight against antibiotic resistance for what I flagged earlier, is that if you, if that infection is prevented, even if it's a viral infection, that is one less antibiotic that's likely to be prescribed to help you out. Um, and, and to be able to make you feel better and, and less pressure on developing resistance, less pressure um, moving forward for all of us and, and in your community and around the world. And so the more that we can vaccinate people and protect them from some of these infectious diseases, the less and the fewer antibiotics we're going to be using collectively. So the more that we can do and the more that individuals can do to, to uh, take care of themselves, get vaccinated and get their family vaccinated, the better we're going to be. And then there's a lot of other things to, you know, the thing with antibiotic resistant pathogens is that they're so diverse, right? There are healthcare associated infections, there's foodborne infections. And so when it comes to foodborne infections, you have to clean, separate, cook your meat to the right temperature. You need to make sure that you're doing everything when you're preparing food and doing it in a safe manner. And we have a whole lot of things on the CDC website that talk about safe food handling, safe food preparation. That's another way you can protect yourself. You know, there's also things like drug-resistant gonorrhea, which is sexually transmitted. So protecting yourself and, and your partner when you're having safe sex, that is also a way where you can also prevent a antibiotic-resistant infection. Uh, when you're prescribed an antibiotic, always using it appropriately, the way your doctor, you know, prescribed it to you and following those directions is critically important. So I think that's the, the thing that we always want to remind people. And, and sometimes we can, you know, when, when the pandemic has happened and when there's so much going on and when there's these things that are, you know, they seem so big, they can sometimes make us feel very powerless, right? And I, I really want to emphasize that we really shouldn't feel that way. Um, these things can be daunting, but there are always things that we can be doing to protect ourselves and our families. And we need to be going back to those things and making sure that we're doing everything that we can. And we also simultaneously need to be making sure that all of the other you know, agencies, including the CDC, the FDA are doing everything they can to structurally and, and make the, the investments that are needed to address these things on, on a bigger scale as well. And how, how closely do you work with the FDA? Does the CDC work with the FDA pretty closely on these matters? Yeah, we do. And in fact, on the decolonization topic, I'm actually very excited to announce, this was just actually cleared to announce this today, that we've been having conversations with FDA 
um, on decolonization and, and what are the challenges of getting decolonizing agents potentially to market. And um, there's actually going to be a meeting later this year. So August 30th, um, uh, there's going to be more information forthcoming. It'll be posted on a website between CDC and FDA. But August 30th, we're going to be having a public meeting on decolonization products. You know, your, your listeners can say they heard it here first. Um, and, and John will make sure we get you the, the details to send out your new, um, but it's, 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 I think going to be an exciting conversation, um, where we're going to be talking about what is the, the potential for decolonizing agents? What can it, what can they do and what sort of prevention role can they play, um, in the fight against any infection, but especially antibiotic resistant infections. And, and I think we feel strongly because you know, quite frankly, we have uh, our antibiotic resistance laboratory network that performs thousands of, de of, of colonization screenings every year. So we are constantly seeing patients and constantly hearing from folks in nursing homes, in hospitals where they have a patient with candida auris, which is a very drug resistant fung fungal infection that can be very deadly, or they have CRE, a, a, a very drug resistant bacterial infection that can be very deadly. And they're colonized with these bugs. And there's not a lot that can be done other than sort of this, the infection control, enhanced infection control, gowning and gloving, isolating the patient and doing those things. But if we could do that infection control really well, plus we could have an agent that could decolonize that person, we could really redu reduce the risk of infection for that individual. Plus we could potentially reduce the risk of transmission of that bug in that hospital, in that nursing home, in that community further. And that would be potentially, I think a, a really cool and really powerful prevention tool that we could have and, and help um, our sort of public health and healthcare arsenal address the problem. That's great. You mentioned um, fungal infections. I think people are probably more familiar with um, bacterial, you know, taking antibodies, earache, sore throat, that type of thing. John, can you share a little bit more? And we're certainly familiar with viruses now with COVID in particular and the flu. Um, but what is the, what are the risks related to fungal infections? How does how does someone get a fungal infection, and why why should we be concerned about that as well? Well, you know, fungi like bacteria, like viruses, like parasites, um, all of these other diverse forms of life, they mutate, you know? And so the development of resistance in any of them is, should not come as a surprise. That's what organisms do. They change, they change in response to pressure. And fungi are, I think, well, in one sense, we're all familiar with some fungal infections. Probably most of us have had uh, so like in your groin or in a toenail, a fungal infection, you know, fungi-like places that, that stay, stay a little bit damp. And so, you know, a common place for them to grow is like where you're wearing socks. Um, but th that's a form that's not, it's not dangerous. It's not pleasant, but it's not dangerous. Uh, the, the, the settings where fungi get you in trouble are the settings where uh, typically you are, you are, compromise in some way. So you can be compromised by, by virtue of trauma. So if, if for example, you uh, injure yourself while gardening, put your shovel into your foot while you're gardening, um, some of the fungi in the soil can on occasion get into your bone and that can cause a local infection. Um, just as bacteria can come in the same way. Uh, the other way is that uh, when you're being treated for cancer, 
there are periods of time when your immune system is really, really, really turned off. Uh, and fungi will take that opportunity to settle in, particularly the fungi that are in the air. The air you breathe at all times has some fungi in it. The air right around you, right this instant, has some fungi in it. But your body is well capable of coping with those fungi. They are no threat to you unless we turn off your immune system and that's when you get in trouble with them. And unfortunately, we don't have, if I said there are not very many antibacterial drugs, there are very few antifungal drugs. And finding a new antifungal drug is even harder than finding a new antibacterial drug because a little bit of biology here, human beings and fungi are quite closely related. Uh, we, 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 if you look at the great structures of life, there's a lot of similarity in terms of the, the way that we organize ourselves and the way our DNA works. And, and so that actually means the closer, it's harder to find something that hits just the fungus and not you. So that's the trick is to be very, very selective with your tool. And so finding a tool that is that narrowly selective is tricky. Uh, I'll put in a plug for the June uh, 2021, last year's issue of Scientific American. We're reading about fungi. Uh, there's a magnificent uh, article in there about fungi as medical threats uh, by Marin McKenna. That I just, it was a very, she did a very good survey of the whole problem. So if you're interested in fungi, uh, go, go check that one out. Um, she was, she was, the, her story was the cover story for Scientific American that month. They liked it so much. So it's a real threat. Numerically, it's not as big a threat as bacteria. You know, numerically, bacteria are the big deal because they're just so much more common. But fungi can definitely, uh, they cause a lot of, a lot of illness and, and it's really, it's terrible to get your cancer cured and not be able to treat the fungal infection or not be able to treat the bacterial infection for that matter. So this is a, both of those things currently occur. You have somebody who has a perfectly treatable cancer and you can't get them to the end because you can't stop the infection because of the dumb resistant fungus or bacteria. Now that's dumb. Okay. <laughs> we should, that should not be frustrating happening. for sure. <laughs> no kidding. Frustrating. So. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Before we go, I did want to give you a chance. Um, uh, if people were to walk away with one or two main thoughts from this or, or key takeaways, I'd love to ask you both what you feel like those should be. What would you like people to walk away from this conversation understanding better or being equipped to take action? Um, Michael, do you mind if we start with you? No, happy to. Uh, and really appreciate the time here and the conversation with John. So I would say, you know, the folks listening at home, I, I would really want them to take away the fact that antibiotic resistance is uh, a present threat and it's, it's not going away. And it's one that we have to rise to meet that challenge or the things that we have become very accustomed to, the antibiotics that we all know and have used um, and our families use are, are going to, to work less and less and they might get to the point to they don't work at all. Now, we have ways, and, and I think from the CDC perspective, uh, especially we want to focus on the prevention of those. From our perspective, the best infection is the one that never happens. Um, and, and the more that we can prevent, the more we can protect antibiotics, the more that we can keep people healthy, and the more we can keep families healthy. Um, and I think the other thing I would just note is what I sort of iterated is that, you know, there are things and steps that you can take as an individual to protect yourself and your family. And you know the good hygiene, getting vaccinated, using antibiotics appropriately, those are sort of the top three. Um, but there's many other ways and, and recommend folks go to um, our CDC website on antibiotic resistance to learn more about that. Thank you. How about you, John? 
Well, from my perspective, everything Michael said, it's always fun to chew the fat with Michael. That's exactly right. Um, the best thing to do is to prevent them. And, you know, Raman and Lakshman Ryan likes to talk about the antibiotics as being the band-aid we apply instead of clean food, clean water, and vaccination. So get your get get vaccinated. Don't get sick with some dumb virus because when you if you do, there's a chance you're going to wind up with a secondary bacterial infection and you need an antibiotic. Well, so if you don't get the viral infection, you don't get the bacterial infection, then you don't need the antibiotic. Fantastic. So you can really prevent all of it by taking care of yourself, taking care of your family. And that's something we can all do. Uh, and we can all push for government action on better infrastructure, clean food, clean water, vaccination. Everybody on the face of the planet should be the standard. And we need to really drive that. And it's going to take citizens saying, I am not happy not having with, with, with unclean water. I want, I, I want to know the food in the supermarket is clean. Um, and then I think the other part of it, the other message I want people to walk away with is that is this thing about antibiotics with the fire extinguishers of medicine. And what, but that's a nice meme, but what does it mean? It's and the, the thing that to understand is that you have to, we as a community have to buy the antibiotics differently than every other drug. It's a very different way of thinking about a pharmaceutical product, but buying these things and understanding I am buying this fire extinguisher to put it in the pharmacy so that I actually hope that I don't use it. I want it to go stale. I want to, I want two years from now, I have to throw it away and buy another box of it because I didn't use it for two years, but I want it there the entire time because in fact, I did use it. I used it every day. I knew that it was safe to be in the ICU. I knew there's something went wrong. I had a tool. It's like my life insurance. It did not pay off today. Actually, it did pay off today. I'm, I, am, I am comforted by its presence and I needed to have it. So I, I think there's this counterintuitive thing about antibiotics and how they enable all of civilization, all, all infrastructure. You cannot take care of newborn babies. You cannot take care of people with cancer. You cannot get your hip replaced civilization would not work the way that it as well as it does without antibiotics and without vaccines. And we absolutely have to have them. Well said, both of you. Thank you both so much, uh, Michael Craig, John Rex. We so appreciate you taking the time and joining us for this infectious conversation. Uh, for those of you who would like to learn more, please visit our website at fightinfectiousdisease.org, and we have links to CDC resources and other resources. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. This was fun. Thank you. <laughs>